the summer months, we've been going through the book of Mark, and today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we're looking at one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever does. In fact, there's only two miracles that are in all four Gospels. It's the resurrection of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to look at that today, and I want to pray for us before we do, and uh, we'll open up the scriptures. Mark chapter 6 will be in verse 31 is where we'll start today, but let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we get to open your word. Thank you that you desire to meet with us. Thank you that you want to know every one of us here in a personal way. And uh, I pray for any that are religious but don't know you, that they would come to know you today. I pray for any that say they're spiritual but not religious and just make up their own stuff. I pray they would come under the authority of your word today. I pray for those of us who need the word of truth to encourage us for this next week. I pray you'd speak to us. And, and God, will you just reveal your glory? You tell us whether we eat or drink or whatever we do that you, you should be glorified. I pray as we open up your word, you'd be glorified. I pray you'd speak through my lips. And you know how to have a conversation with each heart that will hear those words and how they'll receive those words. And I pray you do it uh, with much grace for those who need tenderness and with much force for those who need confrontation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you don't have to be a huge you know, observer of society to figure out that there are a lot of needs in our world. And I've shared with you before that I like to watch the news. You can just turn the news on and see the needs that are all around the world. Or maybe you're just being involved in people's lives. But you think about the stuff that's happening. So you've got ISIS ravaging the Middle East. You've got AIDS tearing apart Africa. You've got people that are dying of hunger. You've got, things, you've got needs of the people that are sitting next to you you could probably never even imagine. There's needs that are happening here. There are emotional needs. There's marital needs. There's things that are going on with people's kids. There's financial stuff that's happening. There's all kinds of needs in our world. And I was thinking about how to demonstrate how needy we are to our church. And I was thinking, well, there's nothing easier than kids. So if you're a parent, you know what it's like and how needy kids can be. And they're constantly asking you to meet their needs. In our family, we've got four little kids, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And they're constantly asking for something. Can I have a Band-Aid? You don't have a cut. Why do you need a Band-Aid? Can I watch a show? You just watch a show. No, you can't watch a show. Can I have something to eat? We just ate dinner. You know, can we? It's all these things. They're constantly asking for these needs. But every once in a while, what happens to me as a parent as I have this delusion that we can actually do normal human activities and not have to meet all of those needs. And so last Saturday, it was Father's Day on Sunday, I don't know if you remember that or not, but on Saturday, I kind of got to pick what we were going to do, and we were sitting at the dinner table, and I'm an extrovert, so sometimes I just have ideas and they just come out of my mouth. Like, I haven't even thought about them really, they're just coming out of my mouth. And I said, why don't we go on a walk? I didn't think of the implications of that. Everybody gets excited. They're all pumped up. Remember the context, we're having dinner. And so instead of walking through the neighborhood, I said, well, let's go down to Lake Lynn, or Lynn Lake, I can't remember what to call it, but Lake Lynn's about three or four minutes from our house, and uh, it's a two-mile loop that goes around the lake. It's a real leisurely walk. It's not, you know, intense, you know, survival-type stuff that you're, you're heading out to. And uh, my wife says, before we leave the house, about a gazillion times every time we leave the house to all of our girls, make sure you go to the bathroom before we leave. So we've just eaten dinner. Everybody's been told a gazillion times to go to the bathroom. We drive three minutes to get to Lake Lynn. Guess what happens as soon as we start walking on the trail? Can I have something to eat? Did anybody bring a snack? And let me tell you, I didn't have a survival pack on my back. Like, this is supposed to be a casual, leisurely walk. I have to go to the bathroom. We have little girls. Some of you have little boys. You're like, well, just have them go to the bathroom. You're in the trail. No, different with little girls. Can, can, I have something to eat? can I have something to drink? Will you carry me? Can we turn around? Can we go back? And then we took our dog with us, and the dog's barking at everybody who walks by, and it's just like, I just want to relax. Like, why is this happening? We get to about the three-quarters of a mile mark, and I, we took a picture. I actually put it on my Facebook. And here's the, the picture uh, of us, which is amazing to me because I, when my wife, my wife's the one who took the picture, I, she showed it to me. I said, are you serious? Like, everybody's smiling. People have been crying, like, seconds before. There were fights happening. It was a mess. So I said, this is perfect social media fodder. 
because it makes your life look like it's going way better than it's actually going. <laughs> right after we got done with this situation, my wife and I had a conversation about whether to continue on or whether to actually turn back. And we, I said, I'm kind of a pusher. I was like, listen, we're not going to let their needs dictate what we do. We're going. Like, we're going to keep walking. And so the dog kept barking. Everybody, you saw the dog. He's about five pounds. If a wild pack of fleas came along, the wild pack of fleas would probably take him out. Okay, he's not, he's not tough. And I'm walking, the he's barking at everybody. So I took him for my, my six-year-old daughter. She's like, I've got him. She's like protecting him and all this kind of stuff. So let me take him for a little bit. So I take the dog. She starts freaking out. Says, he's going to get out of his leash. And I said, the leash is too loose. Like, he's not going to get out of his leash. About one minute later, the 75-pound dog comes by with his owner. And my dog decides he's Cujo. Like he tears out of this collar, goes running towards him. And the owner of the 75-pound dog started freaking out. Like, it's a six-pound dog. Like, come on. And then my daughter freaks out. She's flipping out. Oh, the dog told you he's going to get loose. And I'm thinking, you're right. <laughs> and, and we go, and so somebody wants to be carried. And let me tell you something. At 90 degrees outside and like 1,000 with humidity, humidity I didn't, well, didn't want to carry somebody. We ended that walk. You know, my daughter's hair stuck to my face. My youngest daughter's got long hair. Sweat dripping down my back. And I'm hearing about all their needs. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to hear a bunch of needs. I can get overwhelmed with the needs of my kids when one person wants a snack while someone else is also asking for a Band-Aid and somebody else wants to watch a show at the same time. So can you imagine what it must be like as our Heavenly Father, as He hears needs from China to Houston, L.A., here in Raleigh, Boston, you've got Zimbabwe, like just think about all the places and all the needs coming up in Mandarin, and Swahili, and Spanish, and English, all coming simultaneously. Can you even imagine what it must be like in heaven? Hearing all of the needs, all the requests, all the emotional needs, all the hunger needs, all the physical needs, the spiritual needs that underlie all of the stuff that's behind all of that stuff that's taking place. And you've got to ask yourself the question, God, what's your plan to meet all these needs? God, what's your plan to reach a needy world? And you know what the answer is? It's you. Jesus is the answer, but the way he gets Jesus to these, this world, to these needs, to these people is you. So God's answer for world hunger, you. God's answer for the marital issues of the people that are sitting next to you is you. God's answer for the emotional needs that are taking place all over the world, you. God's answer for pick the need, it's you. And so then the question becomes how? How does that happen? How is he going to use us? And that's what we're going to talk about today in Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bible, please join me in Mark chapter 6. I'll start reading verse 30, verse 31 in that range. And if you weren't with us last week, I just want to remind you what happened last week, uh, really a change of pace of what took place. Because Jesus, up until this point, has been the only one that's been doing miracles in the book of Mark. Jesus is the only one that's been preaching. Remember the message he's preaching is, repent, let's turn. You're headed down the wrong direction. You've got to stop and turn. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the reality is that everyone's on their way to hell. Every person is on this path. The Proverbs say there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to destruction. We're all traveling down this path. The New Testament says that we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, that everybody's headed to hell. But then the message of repentance is, but wait, there's a way. There's a way out. There's an escape. There's only one. His name is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But there's a way. So you've got to stop the way that you're going and turn to a new way, turn to Christ. And so Jesus had sent out his disciples to do that very thing. That's what we talked about last week is he sends out his disciples two by two. There's 12 of them. He even sends Judas. He sends out six groups of two. We don't know how long they're gone, if it's weeks or if it's months. But they're out and they're preaching that message. Repent, turn to Christ. And they've got authority over evil spirits. 
and they're healing people. And so now God's using them to do miracles. And then they come back and they start to report. And so it's like a missionary giving the report of their mission trip in verse 30. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Verse 31, apparently it was successful because there were a lot of people. Look at it. Then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. And so Jesus said to them, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. There's probably a whole sermon just in that verse that many of you need to hear. The place of rest. You work hard, you go hard, and you rest well. Even when it's God's work. Verse 32, so they went. Jesus is being tender. He's being compassionate with them. He sees they're exhausted. They haven't even had anything to eat. They've been out who knows how long, weeks, months, doing all this ministry. And so he went away with them by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And so it's being emphasized. It was a quiet place, as mentioned in 31. Verse 32, a solitary place. Verse 33 says, but, contrast, many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he was ticked. He was annoyed. He couldn't believe they wouldn't just leave him alone. That's not what it says. It says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So here you have a situation where Jesus has got his disciples. They've got needs. They're exhausted. They haven't eaten anything. And of his tenderness, out of his compassion. He says, let's go to a quiet place. And they go to a solitary place. And the very people they were leaving, the very crowd that they were trying to get away from so they could get some rest, runs ahead of them, lands on the other side of the shore. They're on the other side of the shore. So when their boat lands, those faces are there waiting for them. And I'll tell you what I would think. It's like when I say to my kids, can I just get a minute? Can, I just have a, can we just get a little break? Like annoyed. Jesus isn't upset. He says that he had compassion. He felt compassion on these people. He felt compassion on his disciples. He felt compassion on these people. What he's doing here, though, is he's teaching his disciples. The teaching's not done. And he's showing them now through example. And what's happening here in the book of Mark, from the, the, the part we just ended when we did the Jesus is Stronger series, so last week was the first part of the new section, up until this next section we're going to come to in about September in Mark chapter 8, is that Jesus is preparing them. He's ultimately preparing them for what he's going to command them to do at the end of the Gospels after he dies, raises from the dead, and then sends them out and gives a command that applies to us, gives a commission we oftentimes call the Great Commission. It's at the end of every one of the Gospels, but the most popular version is in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, he says this, and imagine being one of the disciples after this experience here where he sent you out two by two, you had authority over evil spirits. You cast out demons. You saw people healed. You preached repentance and people repented to hear Jesus say these words. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority. Like you had some authority when you had authority over evil spirits. But the very authority that spoke the world into existence is mine. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now think about it from their perspective. They saw Jesus die on the cross, be placed in a tomb. Now he's standing before them he said, I've got authority over death. I've got authority over sin. I've got authority over every need that you can imagine in this world. All authority has been given to me. And here's what I say to you. Go. Make disciples. Baptize. When they respond to the message of repentance, when they turn to you, baptize, turn to me, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them. Teach them to obey. Not just so they'll know stuff. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you 
And I'm going to be with you in that process. Can you imagine being the disciples and receiving that command after this preparation? What Jesus is doing is he's preparing them for this command that's going to come. That he's going to use them to reach a needy world. And the command goes to us too. He wants to use you. And so what is he showing them here? He's showing them his compassion. And here's the reality. If we're going to reach a needy world, we must be compelled by the compassion of Christ. Not just our own compassion. We must be compelled by the compassion that we see as we glare upon the glory of Jesus Christ and we see how he felt compassion. He was moved with compassion. Like this isn't just, this isn't just like a, a script like for a story to be told about Jesus and let's take a couple of principles from. You've got to see the person of Jesus in this passage and what actually took place. And that word for compassion is such a, an emotional word that we should be compelled by the compassion that we see in Jesus Christ. Because what oftentimes happens for many of us as Christians is that we think a lot about the divinity of Jesus. We don't think a lot about the humanity of Jesus. And both are true. But many of us, our default is, and you know your, what your default is, if you say things like this, our default is the divinity of Jesus. And so we'll say stuff like, yeah, but he's Jesus. He was tempted, he never sinned. Yeah, but he's God. But he, he walked on water. But he's Jesus. I mean, it's Jesus. He's also human. And we miss that sometimes. Like when he was in the boat when we were in Mark chapter 4 and he was sleeping in the middle of a storm, that's because he was physically exhausted. He really got tired. He really gets hungry. The scriptures tell us he's genuinely tempted. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Whatever temptation you face, he knows that temptation. Real temptation. Jesus really was tired. Jesus really was tempted. And so when he looks at these people, the text says here that he had compassion in the NIV. And look at your passage in verse 34. Some of you might have a New American Standard that says he felt compassion. New King James Version says he was moved with compassion. All of those are good. They're all trying to get at the idea that he, there was a feeling that actually moved him to action. It wasn't just he felt bad for people. See, my problem when I was on that walk with my kids was I was only thinking like a parent. I would go out, you know, they want to say, let's turn around and let's go home. We're not going home. We just started walking. We're not turning around and going back. I want some food. Well, you're going to eat again. We're not going to starve you, but we're not having any food on this trip, okay? So we're going to walk two miles around this lake. They don't know how long two miles is. They don't know, like, they don't know when the next bathroom is. They don't know any of this stuff. And so I'm just thinking as a parent, like, how could your bladder possibly be that bad? How could it be that small? Like, you just, but I wasn't thinking like a kid. Because as a parent, I really do have the power and authority to turn around and go back home. And I really do have the foresight to know about how long it's going to take us to walk through this trail. I really do know what it's going to feel like to do these things. They don't. And I wasn't thinking like them. What Jesus did when he became God incarnate, when he put on flesh, is he became one of us. So he really does know what it's like to feel our pain. And the word that's used there for compassion in this passage of Scripture is it's only used either by or about Jesus in the New Testament. And only, he, he's the one who, and the word is a word that describes the bowels, your inner bowels, because the ancients believed that's where your emotions came from. That's where you felt pain. And so the idea was that he was moved in his inner bowels when he saw these people because he experienced, he felt their pain. This is more than having pity on someone. Having pity can be that you feel bad. Like you see a situation, you feel bad about the situation, but you don't do anything about it. That's pity. Pity's like when you're watching TV and they put on a commercial with hungry kids and they've got the bloated stomachs and the flies crawling around on their face. 
and you, you feel bad about it, and I've done it before, and you change the channel. You can do anything about it. That's pity. Pity is probably what a lot of people felt on me about a week ago. Um, I had one of the more humbling experiences I've had in my life. I actually fell off the treadmill at the gym. The most injured part of me was my pride in that situation. And uh, what had happened was I, was I was running on the treadmill over at the A.E. Finley YMCA on Six Forks. There's probably 15 or 20 of them there if you've ever been there. And I like to run in the front row uh, because then you don't even get distracted by anything. So I'm there and there's a TV there and just running. And I completed my run, was done, and I have kind of a routine. Like I don't really have to think about it. I had my headphones on and uh, thought I turned the treadmill off and got off of it, went over to get some wipes. You clean it off for the next person that's going to come. And I walked back over, got headphones on, must have been listening to a really good song and didn't realize the treadmill was still buzzing around. And I went to step on it, and whoom, like it body slammed me onto the treadmill, then spit me out the back of the treadmill, burned my shoulder up, cut my knuckles up, burned my hip all up, and I'm laying there, and the treadmill's buzzing by my face, right? Like God was very gracious, it didn't hit my face. I take my headphones off, and of course it was a bunch of women behind me on the treadmill, and I hear, oh, ah, like gasping and all those noises. I don't know if you remember the Southwest airline commercials they used to do that, you want to get away? <laughs> it was one of those moments where it was like, I just wish I wasn't here. <laughs> and I proceeded to get up and wipe the machine off, and the workers come around. I'm like, hey, we don't need an incident report. It's going to be okay. Do actually physically turn the machine off. Then I get off of it, and I look over to the side, and uh, over here where my friend Spiro's sitting, some people are lifting weights, and this older, older lady looks at me, and she says, well, you did it about as gracefully as you could. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, as far as falling on your face goes, I guess I'm good at it. That was not graceful, I promise you that. She was trying to be kind. She probably felt pity on me. And the people behind me probably felt pity on me. Here's what I know to be true. I know that none of them felt the pain that I felt after that moment. My shoulder hurt for about a week. My knuckles were bleeding as I got into the locker room. And, uh, and I even took a picture to send to my wife. And then the guy next to me thinks I'm a weirdo because I'm taking a picture in the locker room. And it wasn't going well. <laughs> but see, Jesus does feel our pain. He knows every need you have. He feels. He's moved. That's his compassion. His compassion is when he looks out at this crowd and there are marital issues and there are financial issues and there are emotional issues and there are people that are trying to find answers and things that he knows are never going to deliver answers to them. He feels their pain. And the text tells us why. It says he had compassion on them because, so here's why, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's an Old Testament image that's used of people that are leaderless spiritually of people that are hungry, of people that are vulnerable, of people that are not, they're lacking guidance, of people that lack meaning, of people that lack purpose. They're wandering. And I think that's, that's our world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived well before us, was describing this phrase in this passage of Scripture, and he said this, there were questions but no answers, distress but no relief, anguish of conscience, but no deliverance, tears, but no consolation, sin, but no forgiveness. That's what Jesus saw when he looked out. And I think Bonhoeffer lived well before us. I still feel like he's describing people I come into contact with every day. Like you think about the, our generation, our, the world that we live in. We don't have a problem asking questions, even tough questions, even deep questions, even like meaning of life type questions. We don't have any answers. And so what we do is we just make up answers. And we think because we made up an answer that we like, that that must be true. And somehow that's, that means something, but we lack truth. 
And there's things that we don't want to believe about God. So we just disregard those. We don't want to believe in hell. We don't believe in wrath. And so we don't. And what we end up missing is we can't really understand forgiveness. We can't really understand grace. And so we make up our stuff and we got questions. We got no answers. We got sin. We got no forgiveness. Guilty conscience, but no deliverance. Just figure out ways to cope and escape. And I think that's our, that's our world. That's a sheep without a shepherd. And so what does Jesus do? He takes action. And we're going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 in a minute, but before he does any of that, I think it's amazing what he does here. It says, he felt compassion on them. He had compassion on them. He was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. That was his response. Oftentimes we read over that. He began teaching them, and it says many things, or you could translate that, at great length. He just kept teaching because they needed the truth. That's what, he's going to feed them, but your real problem is you've got a truth problem. And I'll tell you, I've done this job at Southbridge now for about 10 years as a, a lead pastor here. And most people, there are some problems that are genuinely physical problems, but most people you come into contact with, they got a truth problem. As people, they might know the truth, but they don't believe the truth. And so they might know facts, they might be able to quote verses, you might be able to talk to them in the office and just say, they say the right things back, but they don't live their lives according to that. They believe lies, and the lies lead them down a path of destruction. The lies lead them into a place of darkness. The lies lead them away from Christ. And so they need the truth, and Jesus knew these people, they needed truth. And so when he looked out, he sees people with questions without answers. Guilty conscience, no deliverance. Sin, no forgiveness. And so he teaches them at great length as he sees these needs. You think about what are our needs? I'm sure stats with you. There's lots of stats about needs. There's uh, 60,000 people in Wake County. Wake County, not even the triangle, just Wake County, are facing or fighting homelessness. Do you know that? There's needs all around us. Uh, the numbers are, some of them are estimated, but about 132 million orphans in the world today. We don't know for sure, but that's an, esti an estimate, probably conservative estimate. So about 168 million kids in forced labor of some sort. Okay. Can I be honest with you about stats? They raise awareness. For me, rarely do they do anything compassionately to me. I might be aware of something. I might know the need exists now. But I don't become compassionate, moved to where I'm actually going to take action, until there's a face with the numbers, until you really know those people. And so I could try to get you to feel that. I could, I could say to you, you know, 168 million children, uh, that's about 11% of the child population around the globe. Can you imagine if they took 10% of the kids out of Bridge Kids today and forced them into labor? So that could be one of your kids. See, that moves us a little bit more to where, oh, wait, you're not taking my kid. I'm going to do something about that. That's compassion. And many of us, we can talk, I could talk about world hunger and poverty, I mean, but we're kind of here in this little North Raleigh area. We don't see a lot of that. When you look poverty in the eye, when you experience poverty yourself, that moves you to compassion. I remember being on uh, one of the first trips uh, that our church sent to Madagascar, talking to our church planners there. Grant and Jody Waller uh, live there on a permanent basis and plant churches, and God's doing a great work. And they had told us about poverty. But I remember going there and then seeing a man have his cow wash itself in this puddle, and then the man come behind him and fill up his water bottle, drink the water, and then bathe in it himself. That's different than being told about that. I remember being in, we did a Compassion Sunday uh, one time here as a church. I remember traveling with Compassion International to Ecuador and being in the home of a woman who had multiple kids, 
And I know parenting's hard for all of us. I mean, but we got like dishwashers and microwave, like all the conveniences we have. She had a garbage bag ceiling. There's a light hanging through it. There's an extension cord. I don't know where that came from that somehow turned the light on. And she had a special needs child. I believe it was Down syndrome that that child had. And she talked about walking him to the hospital every day to get therapy. I thought, that's, I shouldn't be complaining about a two-mile walk with my kids. And you see it. I remember we did a Compassion Sunday here, and I could tell you stories about that. But do you remember, those of you who are here, when we brought up a, a young lady who, her name was Kawani, she was from the Philippines, and uh, she had been in abject poverty. Family members died of very curable things, um, barely had food. And she told her story about how when she was sponsored by people like you, uh, they, they had food and she could go to school. And now she lives here in the United States. She's working on her PhD. She lives in Tennessee. Was rescued, released from poverty because of people like you. It was different to actually meet the person than to just talk about the ministry. And I had, I had a woman email me this week who just got back from uh, Madagascar. She was doing some medical mis missions work there. And she was sharing with me her first Sunday back at Southbridge was when I was preaching about the woman with the issue of blood. I don't know if you remember that a few weeks back. And... Uh, she said, I had heard that passage before, but I never thought about it the same way because some of the women that she was ministering to had a bleeding issue, one woman for 57 years. And she said, so when you talked about the woman in the passage, I could see their faces. See, compassion happens when you, when you get involved with the people. For some of you, that means you need to go overseas. Some of you need to go on a mission trip. You need to check, it's just right on your car that you're interested in that. We do them every year. I've already sent two trips, I know, to Panama. I know we got another one coming up to Madagascar. You can email the outreach team if you're interested. But some of you need to go. You need to get out of here and see some other things. Some of you need to get involved in the lives of the people that are sitting next to you right now. There are needs everywhere. But it's not until you know the needs. Je see, Jesus, he came and became one of us. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your struggles. He knew them in this crowd so he could speak truth right to them. You're going to be compelled by the compassion of Christ, but it's not enough just to feel this. It's not enough just to be moved. What are the commandments of Christ? See, we're compelled by the compassion of Christ, but we're propelled by the commandments of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see happen next in the passage with this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Look what happens. He's teaching them many things, and he does it for a while, and so Jesus isn't worried about how long he's preaching. He's just going. He doesn't care about your lunch plans, any of that stuff. He's just teaching at great length. And then it says, verse 35, by this time, it was late in the day, probably 3 o'clock, maybe 6 o'clock. It's starting to get evening time. So his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. Now remember, we saw in verse 31, it's, they're going to go to a quiet place. We saw in verse 32 that they're headed to a solitary place. And now here again, the disciples say, this is a remote place. Now let me just tell you something for your own Bible study. When you're studying the Bible tomorrow on your own, when things are repeated in Scripture, they're being emphasized. There's an emphasis being made here that they're in a desolate place. They're in a remote place. Some people say a deserted place, like they're out in the desert. There's an image that's happening here. It's a picture. You've got to know your Old Testament to understand this. It's a picture of God feeding the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven. And the picture is that Jesus is better than Moses. So Moses was their deliverer. Moses was their leader. Jesus isn't just a deliverer. He's not just a leader. He's the one that provides the manna. Remember our question from Mark, who is this Jesus? He's saying, I'm God. And here they have this picture, the same type of setting. When they were on the storm, when, they were, when, they fell, when he fell asleep in the boat, he calms the storm. I'm the God of the sea. I'm the God that provides manna from heaven. I am the God of Israel. I am Yahweh, but I'm here in the flesh 
as your Messiah. That's what he's showing them. The disciples say they're in this remote place. would give the picture of that. And they said, and it's already very late. Verse 36, the disciples say, send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. This makes sense. This is not a bad statement by them. In fact, we know from what we read earlier, they haven't had anything to eat. What probably moves them is, Jesus, send these people away to get something to eat so we can get something to eat. We're hungry. And remember what Jesus has just done with them. Oftentimes when people preach about the feeding of the 5,000, they neglect the context. The context was he's just sent them out two by two. And what did he tell them? Don't take any money. Don't take any bread. And so they just went out and by faith, God's provided for them for weeks, maybe months. And now here they are. And Jesus is saying, I'm not interested in your report from your past trusting me by faith. I'm going to tell you to trust me by faith in a new way right now. And look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. You feed them. Something we also oftentimes miss in this passage when we talk about the feeding of the 5,000 is Jesus is not the one who fed the 5,000. It was the disciples. He's commanding them here, you you see all these needs. You're finally starting to see the needs. See, I've been teaching them, and I've been teaching to their needs. Now you're starting to see the needs. I want you to meet the needs. The you here is emphatic in the Greek, it's a, and it's a command. You give them something to eat. What's going to happen here with the disciples is they're going to do something they would have never dreamed of doing. Because they're being propelled, pushed to action by the commands of Christ. And we're not commanded to feed 5,000 people. This is a command that's specific to them. But we do have a lot of commands that are given to us that talk about meeting people's needs. How about this one? Love your neighbor as yourself. No one does that, by the way. No one actually does that one. I mean, we like people and we want to serve them. And I'm not saying you're bad people, but, but this true religion, pure religion that God considers good religion, James chapter 1, verse 27, look after widows and orphans. How many of us even know widows and orphans? It says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20 that if you don't love your brother who you can see, you can't even say that you love God who you can't see. You're a liar. So do we do this stuff? Do we do the commands? These commands should move us to action. And here he's telling them, you, you are my answer. You are the answer to the, 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 the needs that these people have. You go feed them. Then look what they say back. It says in the next verse, you give them something to eat. The second part of this verse. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go spend that much on bread and give it to these people to eat? Like, even if we had that much money, which we don't, because you just sent us out with no money, even if we had that much money, should we spend it on this? And each one of the Gospels gives an account of the feeding of the 5,000. And John, you can read it in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we find out it's actually one guy who says this. His name's Philip. And so what happens is that Jesus says, hey, you give them something to eat. And Philip starts thinking, man, there's this many people. There's 5,000 guys plus women and children. And then everybody makes, if an average wage is this, and if we had that, that much money, he's got his abacus out. He's pulling out this Excel spreadsheets of the first century, whatever those were. And he's figuring out. And it says that he actually says, even if we had eight months wages and we bought, we, there would be enough for everybody to have one bite. And I look at that and I think to myself, there's always one guy like that, isn't there? Like you're in a session, you're dreaming about what God might want to do. There's always like one person that's a naysayer. We say as our, I'll just let you in on our, our, staff, our church staff culture, uh, we have a saying for that. Sometimes we'll be dreaming, what does God want to do this fall? What does God want to do through us the next series? What does God want to do? And we start talking, we start dreaming. There's always somebody that will say, but we can't and we don't have and how about this? And so our saying as a staff, and anybody who's listening to me right now that's on our staff, you know what I'm about to say. 
don't be a dream-killing fun sucker. That's, that's our statement. So we say, hey, somebody starts going, but we don't have enough chairs, or we don't have this, and we couldn't do that, and what about this? Don't be a dream-killing fun sucker. Like, we're dreaming right now. Just stop. There's always one. Philip's the one. So, hey, we can't, we can't do this. What you're telling us to do, Jesus, we can't do. Which could seem like Jesus lacks compassion, like he's merciless. He knows they haven't had anything to eat. He knows they went to the shore to get some rest, and when they got there, the very people they were trying to leave were standing there waiting for them. He knows he sent them out with no food and no bread, and now he gives them an impo- they're emotionally exhausted, they're spiritually worn out, they haven't physically eaten anything, and he says, you feed them. He gives them an impossible command. It's not because Jesus is merciless. He was tender and even taking them to this place. He's teaching them. Hey, when, when I leave this place, it's gonna, I'm going to use you to reach a, to nations, take the gospel to all the nations. We're talking about 5,000 men right now, plus the women and the children that are there with them. And they still realize we can't, which is probably the best place they could ever be. Because now they realize, on my strength, on my, I can't make this happen, which is exactly where some of you need to get to. Some of you need to come to the place where you come to the end of yourself. Some of you have been striving, some of you for your whole lives, been trying, trying to do enough, trying to accomplish enough. Some of you for you know, bad reasons, climbing the corporate ladder or whatever, trying to please dad. Some of you even for good reasons. You're trying to, you want God. You want to please God with your life and you're going hard. And, and you've got to come to the end of yourself where you realize I can't do it. See, that was the problem for the religious people in the gospels. We've been going through Mark and you see Jesus confront these religious people. Remember in Mark chapter two, when Jesus, he's having a meal with the tax collectors and all the sinners and the religious people are thinking, Why? he can't be the Messiah. He's hanging out with these guys. He's at that kind of party. He wouldn't go to a place like that. And Jesus comes out and he confronts them and he says, hey, a doctor doesn't come for healthy people. He comes for sick people. And I didn't come for you. I came for sinners. And see, they thought, because they were doing better than some of the other people, they thought, we don't really need a savior because we're religious and we're moral. And that's where some of you are at. You, you know the right information. You know the gospel but the way you believe is like it depends upon you. And you haven't depended upon the grace of God and you can't depend upon the grace of God until you come to the end of yourself and you see that you can't. You see, Jesus, when he said that statement to those religious guys, Jesus, it was, he knew. He knows it's in their book in Isaiah. There are none righteous, no, not one. He knew they weren't righteous for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of them were. He came for all of them, even those religious people. But they didn't, they didn't think they needed, I mean, maybe like it would help out, but need? Do you need Jesus or is he like an assistant to you? Like he can help get you over the hump. I was talking to a friend this week, just sharing with me. He just finished Celebrate Recovery. It's a ministry our church does, 12-step recovery program. Uh, it's Jesus-focused program that we do on Thursday nights. He just wrapped it up with a small group and uh, we, he and I were chatting and I said, so are you free? And he said, exact quote, I had to know my darkness and how dark I really am. Like he went there with some problems, but he had other stuff to deal with. I had to know the darkness before I could know the beauty of God's grace. These guys come to the spot where they, we can't do this. That is a great place to be. I saw, I was reading one guy this week, Kent Hughes, 
uh, in his commentary on this passage, he was talking about it's easy for some of us to offer our strengths to Jesus. And he gave some real practical application. He said, so you're an eloquent speaker and you speak on behalf of God. Good for you. So, you, you, so you're a businessman and you've got administrative abilities and you offer those administrative abilities. Good for you. He said, what about offering your weaknesses to him? And there's a reason why in the book of Judges, when God selects Gideon from the least tribe and he tells Gideon, you're going to go into battle, but you've got too many soldiers. We want to make you weaker. We're going to take away the men. We're going to take away some soldiers. We're going to weed out your army. There's a reason why God does that. There's a reason why in the New Testament it says it is through your weaknesses that he's made known. There's a reason why he takes his gospel message that's the most important message anyone could ever have and he puts it in jars of clay. That's the analogy used for you and me. Fragile vessels. Because in our weaknesses, we make him known. So we make that weakness available to him. Hughes quotes uh, Elizabeth Elliot in his commentary. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband, says this statement, if the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is, a, this is material for sacrifice has been a great strength for me, she says. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. Just bring what you have. I simply give it to him. As the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes, with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what, good, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it, and his, it's his blessing. And so what ends up happening next in the passage is Jesus tells them, they're focused on what they don't have. Jesus says, well, let's use what you do have. Let's use... You, you might not be, so you can't stop world hunger. Can you feed somebody? So you can't, you can't deal with orphan crisis, widow crisis. Can you bless somebody? You can't, you can't love every person in the world. You can't reach all the nations. Can you reach one? Amen. What about the guy that lives next door to you? What about your coworker? What about your neighbor? What about your spouse? What about your kids? Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? We don't have eight months wages. We can't give everybody a bite. Jesus says, what do you have? He asked. And he knew they didn't have any bread and they didn't have any money because he sent them out that way. Then he says, go and see. Take up an offering, disciples. And what ends up getting told, not told here, but in John chapter 6 as well, is that there's one of the guys, his name's Andrew, he goes out and he finds a little boy who's got a lunch and it has got five little loaves of bread and two, or, yeah, two little fish and five little loaves of bread. So it's basically like a lunchable. It's a little bit of ham chopped up and a little bit, no ham, it's a Jewish thing, but anyway, it's good. <laughs> something in there, and then cheese and some crackers. But it's also interesting, we don't get any of the details of how Jesus does this miracle. I think sometimes we imagine like, whoosh, like bread just appeared everywhere, and you know, different flavors and all that kind of stuff. All the, and it, it appears that it was a pretty modest miracle. That Jesus, the one who spoke everything in the creation, just like fish never stopped coming as he handed it out, and bread never stopped coming, and then it was the disciples who went and fed the people. You look in here and, and you see what happens. When they found out, they said five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. That's a picture, by the way, of Psalm 23. For those of you who know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside green pastures. Here we've got people without a shepherd. And Jesus has them sit down on the green grass so that he can feed them. And he's going to give them more than they wanted. Look what happens. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Makes it easier to count, by the way. 
Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. They're the ones. You feed them. You brought the offering. You're going to be the one that feeds them. He also divided the two fish among them all, those two little fish. They all ate and were satisfied. That word for satisfied is like an animal that's getting fattened. And the, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish, so they get to eat too. The number of men, and that word for men there is, uh, there's, a, there's a Greek word for, it's oftentimes translated men in the New Testament, that mean, just means people, male or female. This means men, male. The number of males who had eaten was 5,000. Matthew tells us there were also women and children. There may have been 15 or 20,000 people here. And they all had more than enough because Jesus does more than we could ever ask or imagine. But what happened? They took what they had and they made it available, which then begs the question for us, what are we holding back? You only have about 70-some years here on this earth. You make all your time available to God. I can't, I can't reach all the nations, but who can you reach? What do you have? What about your money? Well, I tithe, maybe, some of you do. But a lot of you don't even do that. But those of you who tithe. But is everything available to God? Like your car, your house, your clothes. Your, like it's all yours. Just use it. Just pour my life out like a drink offering like Paul talks about. Is that really, is that how you come? What about your talents? But the strengths and your weaknesses, is it all there on the altar before him? And you say, here, just use me. Here I am, Isaiah. Send me. Some of you, need, some of you a year from now, should be living on the foreign mission field. And before you think to yourself, not me, why not? Your life's only so long. Just make it count. Some of you just need to involve the person sitting next to you. Is it all available to him? Because you see what he does here. Twelve guys, takes this little lunch, they make it available, and he feeds fifteen or 20,000 people. Can you imagine what he would do? There's hundreds of people will be here today. I don't know exactly what the attendance is today, but usually on average here at Southbridge, somewhere seven to eight hundred people will be here today. If seven or eight hundred people would do this, all my time, all my talents, all of my money, all of me, it's not much, but it's yours. See, we get distracted as Christians. We're fighting about, like, what bathroom laws. And, we, and then politicians should do that stuff, and then we should pray for our politicians, I get all that. Not that it doesn't matter, but we are distracted. Like, thinking, of whoever wins the election, like, it's some victory for Jesus or not. We pray for revival for our nation. I hope you do. We're going to reach the nations. What would he do if hundreds of people actually, like, there's one little boy who gives his lunch here. Think you can reach a city for Christ if hundreds of people would say, Here I am. I don't have much, but it's yours. You do what you want to do. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll, I'll say what you want me to say. I'll give what you want me to give. I'll do whatever you want. And a lot of us, we think that's true. We don't believe it. That God's plan for reaching the nations, the needy nations, is you. For some of you, that means you've got to get involved in other people's lives. You're not going to be moved with compassion until you look those needs in the eye. You've got to get into God's Word. You're going to be propelled by His commands. This command does not apply to us. You go feed 5,000 people. But there are a lot of commands that apply to us, meeting the needs. Why well, can't meet all the needs? We meet the needs that are around you, the ones He puts before you. 
He will guide you. He will direct you. He will give you the words. And when you don't have enough to meet the needs, he takes care of that too. But the question is, will we, will we trust him? We'll stop holding back. I hope this isn't the kind of message that you can hear and think, God, I should be more compassionate. Let's go to bricks. I, I should obey some more commands. I'm busy. God wants to use you. And there are a lot of people that need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and, and we sing songs today about that you're more than enough. And sometimes even in our own personal lives, we wonder about that. We have needs. We have our own hurts, our own struggles of faith, our own questions that we don't feel like we have answers. Thank you for giving us answers in your word. Thank you for giving us more than just words on a page but giving us the person of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for those here who are yet to place their faith in you. I pray today would be the day of salvation that they'd realize there's a savior who knows their needs, who cares for them, and doesn't just want them to clean up their act, doesn't just want them to obey certain commands, but wants to know them in a personal way. I pray that they would trust your son Jesus as their savior. And Father, those of us who know you in that personal way, God, I pray you'd put a burden on our heart for the needs that are around us, all the needs. And it can be overwhelming. And we come to a place where we say, we can't do it. And God, we just trust you. We lean on you. We, we trust. You just use us. And I pray for the things that I'm holding back. I pray for the things that my friends are holding back from you. I pray, God, that you would just take them. And uh, you might have to pry some of our fingers off of them. And that's painful. And you may just have our hearts open up and release them to you. I pray you'd do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.